Welcome to the Global Active Podcast. Broadcasting Global Active Thought Bombs. Exploding Global Active Mutative Materials for a Neo-Humanist, Post-Capitalist World. We're broadcasting from Nungabudja, also known as Perth, Western Australia, the most isolated city in the world. We look to the leadership and the ancient wisdom of Aboriginal elders, both past and present, and to other traditional owners around the world, recognising they are the caretakers of a repertory of knowledge that is essential to our continued existence now and into the future. With the Commons as our North Star and Peer to Peer as the Way, we engage with creative solutions, such as those being explored in movements for a new economy, solidarity economy, a proud all connected, parallel, interwoven, intersectional movements for social, economic and environmental justice. Together we strive for our individual and collective emancipation. Agitate. Educate. Organise. Create. Global Activity Radiates. Okay, it's my really tremendous, I'm very, very excited to be talking to Alana Irving, who's famous uh, for a few things, uh, but working with the Open Collective at the moment and heavily engaged with Inspiral and uh, just doing amazing things uh, with everything she's doing. So thank you very much for being with us, Alana. Thanks for having me. Um, I thought we'd start maybe with your book. Uh, with the latest well, with the book, uh, Better Work Together. And I thought I'd be probably a little bit almost provocative to start off with, if you don't mind, but like, you know, very friendly, uh, I hope. Um, just so Better Work Together. And obviously that, um, you know, wow, I mean, that's, uh, we just better work together. <laughs> um, but... I wonder about the how you can how the power of community can transform your business you know, and just the choice of that word business being I imagine one that was uh, had some conjecture and just you know like it's so important uh, this work and we talk about this work um, in terms of the you know bossless kind of leadership and um, you know bossless organisations but um, you know I think that's really clear obviously within. Uh, the kind of framework like um, my work with Friends of the Earth uh, and you know, other things, but um, yeah, is it is it uh, is that what it's about in a way? Like business, obviously, that's that's a that's a big dream. I imagine getting that into that space. Yeah, I guess I'm detecting under what you're saying maybe a little bit of the I don't know knee jerk reaction to all the baggage that the word business brings with it in our capitalist society and. I guess it's just sort of a stroppy claim that we don't have to fit into that paradigm, that way of thinking about business. We don't have to capitulate to the capitalist default society out there in order to use words like that, in order to use things like money, in order to use things like companies. Um, In my mind, like, you know, a lot of people have called what I do social enterprise. I would like to just call that enterprise and all the other stuff can be antisocial enterprise (laughs) because it should be just normal that business should look holistically at having a positive impact on communities, for people, for the planet, 
Um, and I think if we can let go a little bit of that baggage or that fear and have a conversation, which is, well, what does it mean to reclaim some of these very powerful tools for human organizing um, for this set of values or for this way of thinking? Um, so things like, you know, the, the form of the corporation is something that has evolved in human society over many hundreds of years and is very interesting in certain ways. And you can take hold of it and get really creative with it and make it do what you want it to do. Um, there are also incredibly inspiring models, as you know, for, yeah, a post-capitalist society you could imagine being made up of worker co-ops or syndicates of co-ops or I don't even know what people can imagine in this sort of utopian future. But I think it will require a deep understanding of all of these dynamics of how organizations work. Co-ops are just as much business as some, you know, privately owned profit maximizing organization. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think the book was a little bit provocative and or to say, you know, we're not afraid to step into that space and claim it for what we want to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, I really admire the courage of that. And I imagine, you know, you've got a whole uh, swathe of uh, uh, friends like my friends who would be just really challenged by that. And um, but uh, yeah, really appreciate your yeah, talking a little bit to that. I guess, um, I guess that kind of brings me to that next question, I guess, um, this idea of just post-capitalizing, post-carbon, of really bringing a, uh, a post-capitalist framing uh, to, uh, yeah, to the post-carbon economy. But when I'm talking about that, I mean also to, you know, the movements out there that are more oppositional. Um, and, you know, again, much gratitude and I'm, I'm yeah, very much engaged in those oppositional activities as much as, um, I guess, this new economy post-capitalist stuff. But what, yeah, how important do you think it is that we can uh, help our comrades, for want of a better word, in, uh, in this more oppositional space to, um, to become more creative and engaged uh, yeah, with the post-capitalist, with the post-capitalist commons, peer-to-peer -peer kind of movements, or is that not necessarily in your view? Like, is it, is it good that those people are just focused on that? Yeah. Um, I think we need the whole spectrum of activity that you're referring to. Me personally, I am much more attractive, attracted to the sort of, you know, build the new reality, make the old reality obsolete sort of projects, but that's not to say that those are in any way, more important than the oppositional movements because those are incredibly important right now. And I'm, you know, very glad that there are some very smart and very strong people willing to be out there um, really, be, yeah, defying the current power structures. So I'm very supportive of that work. For my, for my daily work, I tend to be more attracted to, yeah, creating the new stuff. Um, but I think a lot of what I do is actually facilitating the intersection between the sort of the old paradigm, including opposing the old paradigm and sort of new paradigm possibilities are completely different ways of, of working and operating. So yeah, the project I'm working on now, which is Open Collective, is basically, uh, it's like a bridge, or if you're a tech person, you might say an API between legacy systems like the legal system and the banking system and how money works and everything, uh, con how contracts work, how legal entities work, and a sort of new paradigm way of organizing, which is very fluid, often sort of unowned distributed collaborations um, that don't 
not only can they not fit into the form or check the boxes of those sort of old world models, but if they were to try to do so, oftentimes destroys the soul or the essence or what's really amazing about what they're doing. So yeah, I've created quite a few different tools that sort of enable groups to keep that really important um, new distributed collaborative form, but still interface with old world systems where so much of the the power and money and everything that we often need to access to, well, A, like pay our rent and live our lives, but B, um, yeah, gather the kind of um, power we need to do the oppositional work that's necessary. So I hope, I hope those tools are, are helping. And I think all the tools that I've worked on in the last many years have been follow this pattern of being on the surface, like, oh, this is like productivity. This is so helpful. This is like, and underneath they're just like fully <laughs> subversive. Like uh, we're going to yeah. get, yeah, we're going to get collaborate, like, you know, consensus decision-making into mainstream organizations through yeah. a software tool that just makes it, you know, really easy or like, you know, financial tools that mean that the easiest way to do things is to be super transparent and inclusive about financial decision-making and budgets and stuff like that. Um, I think that these can be like insidious in a positive way almost, infiltrating the old systems. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, that trickster archetype, you know, it doesn't have to be just for the bad guys, does it? We can make use of it. Use of it. Um, I think um, if you did nothing else uh, in your life, Alana, you would have uh, probably done your share of the work with just your contribution to Lumio and exactly what you're talking about there. Um, but... Um, Yes, I uh, appreciate you've got lots of more work to do and, uh, and we'll get to the open collective stuff in a second. I'd love to talk about that. But maybe just before we do this, I'm going to flash in front of the microphone here our Beyond uh, Paradigms conference that we've got coming up um, uh, 4th to the 7th of October in Perth. <laughs> um, come. We, we're really... One of the things we're doing in the lead up to that conference is inviting people to, um, to tell us what their beyond paradigms kind of um, yeah view or vision of the world is. So, can you can you give that little pitch for us? What's um and yeah, I'll let you kind of decide the, the realistic time frame of what um, what that might look like. That is a good question. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm sad that I'm not going to be able to make the conference this year. I really enjoyed coming last time in Melbourne and meeting everyone. Um, and I know it's going to be an amazing conference. I have to be in New Zealand at that time, but I hope everybody else goes. Um, gonna, I'm going to make a pitch to you to speak by uh, video link up, but we can okay. do that afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're basically, are you asking me about my sort of utopian future vision? Yeah. 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 I struggle with this. Like, I have this rant that I trot out regularly about how we as a culture seem to want to write all these dystopian science fiction stories. And I'm a massive fan of utopian science fiction. Like I love oh. Star Trek and like, yeah. you know, and it's so hard to find actually utopian sci-fi for some reason. Like we seem to be obsessed with the dark and dystopian. Yeah. Um, so if people know of any great utopian science fiction, I mean, I've read some, like, I love The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, and yeah. I recently read The Fifth Sacred Thing by Star Hawk. But these are stories of little bubbles of utopian futures, you know, confronting huge dystopias all around them and fighting for their lives. That's, that's not quite the story that yeah. I'm looking for. Yeah. And I struggle. Like, so I think, oh, maybe I should, I should, write, I should write those utopian sci-fi stories if I'm going to sit here complaining about it. <laughs> but I, I find it really challenging. Like, 
I have this um yeah framework about leadership that that I use sometimes called full circle leadership, which talks about visionary leadership and operational leadership. And I am like very far over on spectrum towards the operational leadership thing. I'm like very much a let's what can we build next week as a proximal step from where we are now. And I push myself and I try to get to that future visionary, you know, utopian cast further out thing, but I find it really challenging. But I guess I guess I can feel like it's just right there, like the 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 possible beyond paradigm thing. Maybe it's not so far away and that makes it feel more accessible to me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm not far, far from it for me to tell you uh, what your vision should be. But like my sense of you is that you're actually really, you have a really firm vision of that, even though you, I, I've heard you talk about yourself being more operational and not, you know, I'm not going to argue with that, of course, but you know, like, you know, it's clear that you have a really strong sense of what's needed here and now. And I really, I really appreciate that, you know, and you've been a part of a, a group of people that are really, you know, prefiguring, uh, you know, something legit, you know, and obviously had a huge, that's had a, been hugely inspiring uh, thing given Inspiral's popularity. I guess it would just be like a slightly more, like pushed forward version of what I'm doing in my life. Like I went, I, um, I bought my first house a couple of years ago cause we were having a baby. And like, of course I had all these internal struggles of like, Oh no, am I like becoming this terrible, like, you know, suburban homeowner? Am I losing my values or whatever? And it was a really weird process going through, yeah. like trying to get the bank to approve you to give you a mortgage and we had a strange experience because we submitted all of our information to the bank. And it was then that I realized like for the past, whatever, eight years, my life has been so defined by wealth of my network, wealth in relationships and wealth in co collaboration. And so much of the wealth of my life was not represented in numbers and money in the bank. And they were like, hang on, so you've been like making only this much money and yet you're like saved up money and you have it. It's because so, so much of the richness of my life was not, I didn't have to pay for it, wasn't in the capitalist paradigm. Yeah. So like whatever, we, we convinced them to give us a house or give us a mortgage and we got a house and stuff. <laughs> um, but I just think, I guess pushing that to even further extreme, like I would love to, instead of living in my own house, I'd love to live in a you know housing cooperative situation it was too much for me to take that on in addition to everything else I was doing. But if that were the norm, that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, my partner and I, you know, we do completely like 50, 50 balanced parenting and working. We both work part-time do parenting. And obviously we're incredibly privi privileged to be able to do that, but it's also a choice in terms of gender balance and um, you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, constantly questioning these um, roles that society sometimes tells us we need to play but imagine what if that was the norm what if like balancing work life and family life um, and you know between genders or between people or however that they wanted to to balance it for their own lives what if that was the norm um, and so I guess it's more about just taking everything that I'm doing you know I, I set this bar really high in my own life where I'm only going to do work on you know positive impact projects again speaks to my huge privilege to be able to say that, but I have managed it for the last eight years. All of my work has been open source, you know, in the building the commons, positive impact, whatever mistakes have been made and not everything went perfectly, but I was trying at least genuinely. So I guess if everybody had those same opportunities, 
across society imagine what a different world it would look like yeah well it's a bit of a it's kind of a bit of a trick question i'm not you know didn't, um intentionally frame it as that but i'm realizing as you're talking and you know i've got certainly some awareness of this in co-producing this conference you know like the you know the privilege that's going to be in that room even just you know having to you know charges me as much as we are for tickets like there's there's all kinds of complexities in this question and i really like um yeah that you've spoken to that just even you know certainly in my part of the world and in new zealand you know like what we have here is is way beyond the paradigms or dreams of uh, so many people in the world so just yeah for me yeah definitely just sharing what we have is 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 such a, a huge um huge part of that but yeah thank you that's beautiful um i guess next question or you know we have this uh extinction rebellion thing happening around the world at the moment which is really exciting um i got onto this open collective i spoke to pia um i don't know like five years ago i think like open collective had just kind of got going I got so excited about what was happening this with this. Um, I guess as someone who was in, heavily involved with Occupy over here, I just saw immediately the kind of, oh, wow, this would have been so useful, this this tool at that time. And um, uh, we've used it uh, for a few different projects, including an indie media project um, and some other bits and pieces, uh, student environment network um, fundraising. But anyway, Please tell us about Open Collective and please be more compelling about sharing how <laughs> exciting it is than I'm able to be because I'm, I'm, it's, I find it difficult to, um, uh, yeah, I need to be more compelling. Help me to be more compelling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I empathise because it's like when you explain Open Collective, it can really easily sound boring and complicated. Yeah. But if you are the kind of person like you or like me, who's been the one kind of behind the scenes, figuring out on a really practical level, how, how do we make this like movement or community function, especially when it intersects with money and like legal questions. Um, and you know the pain of trying to make that work. I do. <laughs> Those people who see Open Collective and go, oh my God, yes, because you immediately get it but it's a little bit of a hard thing to explain in like one flashy headline. Like when you go to the Open Collective page, it, it looks like basically a crowdfunding platform. And the main difference you'll notice straight away is that everything is fully transparent. So you can see not only where does all the different money come from to the different projects, but also where's the money spent. So it, basically because um, Open Collective functions as like a way to hold your money and then when you want to get it out, you submit an expense and say what the money's for. It just automatically creates a transparent budget, sort of reporting and all that stuff for community accountability. It's all automatic in real time, which is super important because from my personal experience, even if you say, oh yeah, transparency, great. Yeah, we're totally into that. It's really hard on a practical level to make it happen and it's very time consuming and it takes a lot of work and effort and a lot of times it just falls off the priority list so it's great to have it be automatic and then so that's the first kind of level of open collective that you see when you first look at it and then you sort of look under the surface um, and realize that it's actually a tool for fiscal sponsorship or in australia i think you call it auspicing where basically 
one legal entity who has a bank account can serve as an umbrella organization or a host organization for many projects or for one project. But basically the point is projects don't need to incorporate themselves. If you as a, uh, an initiative or, you know, open source project or a meetup group or whatever you are, um, especially if you're the kind of group that's not, it's not owned by anyone, it might not make sense for one person to open a bank account under their name on behalf of this project, but you also don't necessarily want to incorporate or go through, you know, making a legal entity and hiring an accountant and worrying about taxes and all that stuff. Um, it basically enables organizations who do have those things, who have a bank account and a legal entity and an accountant to provide this space as a commons to the community of collectives that they want to serve. Um, open Collective, it's, its biggest um, area is open source software projects because they're a really great example of unowned, distributed, collab transparent, distributed collaborations. Um, and so we have an entity that I run in the background called the Open Source Collective, which is a nonprofit that serves as the legal home for all of these open source projects. But that can be repeated in many ways in many different communities. So we've got what we call them fiscal hosts, but we have, for example, Open Collective Europe. Um, there's a lot of Extinction Rebellion groups in Europe who are coming on Open Collective now because they also fit this model of an unowned distributed collaboration who wants to be transparent and accountable and doesn't want to have one person own the thing. Uh, so hopefully that helps explain it a bit better. Um, we are expanding quite a lot because any, any organization can come along and become a host organization. Some come along and just host, you know, they're one collective and, and they're quite small. Others, uh, for example, a grant making organization, like a nonprofit foundation could come along, become a fiscal host. And then when they make a grant to a project, especially like an unincorporated project, instead of just having sort of give money to an individual and then hope for the best and, and make that person do a bunch of reporting and stuff like that, they can just set them up a collective and it's instantaneous and they can just credit the funds. Funds stay in the host organization's bank account until the people actually running the project, um, you know, claim them for operational expenses. And then it's all just makes things a lot easier. Yeah, look, I can hear the attention span of people kind of going, oh my God, oh, yeah. talking about money, <laughs> going on. But uh, this is actually a serious conversation, isn't it? You know, like we, if we don't tend to this, then, you know, like that, how seriously do we take transparency and accountability in our movements? You know, like it's, you know, I get it. <laughs> I um, And, you know, like it also goes a little bit to even what you were talking about before, like in terms of, you know, your own personal journey, which, um, you know, appreciate you sharing there and, you know, your relationship with money in, you know, like we don't, uh, defeat capitalism by ignoring capitalism though we have to have these interfaces with the existing world in order to transform it i think um we do ourselves um and our movements some disservice by not being real about that and you know like i know this is not a new thing but i, I just um yeah it's obviously uh you know open collective is like a really interesting hack uh to to enable that so yeah any thoughts on my rant there? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, the concept of money can be incredibly powerful um, because I've been working in projects related to the concept of money for a while. Like before this, um, I worked on CoBudget, which is a participatory budgeting tool. And that grew out of my work in Inspiral, which is 
behind the scenes was related to what's going on at Open Collective because it was like me doing like a manual hack together version of what Open Collective now automates to enable like the Inspiral Foundation to uh, let all of these projects that just needed to bootstrap out of nothing, you know, get started and start training. And um, yeah, so we did a lot of that and Inspiral Services too, sort of like hacking company structures to enable how people wanted to work. Um, but anyway, as part of that whole experience, those conversations about money have come up many times. Um, and I facilitated some deep conversations or deep circles about money. And uh, it's like a, a very profound question. If you people, first of all, had lots of defensiveness around it because they sense that oh, money is connected to these deep questions about values and what's important and how I was raised and like my feelings of con like internal conflict about how I was raised and my feelings of guilt and worth and dreams and fears. So it's all there. But as you say, I don't think we're going to get anywhere by avoiding or running away from these questions. I think we have to go through unpacking, untangling, picking apart what is this thing so that we can look at it frankly and then ask questions like, well, what are the values we want to define how we use money? What, what does worth mean to us? What are my fears about having enough to be okay, you know, when I'm older or for my children or whatever's on your mind? I do think we need to have those conversations. And I, I hope that these tools, which kind of slide in as like a, a very practical, we're going to solve, you know, a problem so you don't have to make a really complicated spreadsheet. You can use this thing. But at, at the end of the day, what's going on is, oh, Nagless Group is having question, having conversations about questions like, oh, well, who decides what to do with money or what are our goals around money or why are we collecting money or, you know, all of those things come up and I think that's really healthy. I think it's actually really deeply connected, this conversation to actually a conversation about leadership as well. Um, I've, I think it's Vinay Gupta, um, I can't remember exactly what, he, what his comment was, but something around you know, the, the the generals on the battlefield just all being, like, emaciated and, you know, like, not... Like, had... Sorry, I'm not uh, framing this very well, but, like, just the, the thing of how do leaders maintain their structural integrity, you know, life support infrastructure to actually be effective in what they're doing uh, and, you know, feed their kids and, you know, like, it's all... You know, this is all big stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think it's like a mainline connection to some of our very deep fears about where our society is, what's actually valued in our society. The, it's like the deep level of alienation that capitalism creates. And I think we all feel it. Whether we are succeeding or not succeeding in the capitalist system, I think we all feel that alienation and that um, separation from our deep human values. Um, and I think these topics, leadership is another one. So I do a lot of thinking and talking and writing about the nature of leadership. It's another word that carries huge amounts of baggage alongside money and business mm -hmm. because most people's experiences with leadership are these really sort of messed up power dynamics. And maybe they're, you know, they were a kid in their family and was a dictatorship and then school was a dictatorship and they go to work and that's a dictatorship and they've never felt you know, empowered in those spaces, or perhaps they have, and they've had to fight to create a different space. And now they're rejecting, I'm rejecting all of that hierarchical bullshit, which I, yeah, I totally respect that. Mm. But again, for me, the way I, that's useful for me to conceive it is I'm not going to throw that out. What I'm going to do is grab hold of the idea of leadership, 
deconstruct it, realize that we can separate it out. Okay, we can separate out the positional authority and the coercive hierarchy stuff. Once we do, what is left here? What is this leadership thing? What is this force that can help people come together and get aligned and achieve more together going in the same direction than they could, you know, going off by themselves or, you know, fighting each other in different directions? I think that that's our huge opportunity and our responsibility as people who would like society to be different, to not reject, but to actually reclaim, deconstruct, and then reconstruct. Like, I feel like a lot of people get to the deconstruct stage and then stop, but you've yeah. got to then ask yourself, okay, but there are some powerful forces there. There's some unavoidable dynamics, like power dynamics are an emergent property of human groups. You are never going to escape them. Yeah. So really grabbing that and going, what do we want this to be? How is this going to work for us? How, what matches our values? What are the systems we need to create to make that happen? Yeah. I think, you know, another really important thread with this again, and we touched on it before, but just to emphasize again, you know, the, it's, it's so much, you know, when you're talking about um, this discomfort with money, uh, you know, that, um, you know, activists or, you know, people who are really, really struggling uh, in this space, uh, you know, considering is it's a huge privilege actually to even think about that. You know, like, I mean, I've had the tremendous privilege of working in a you know in a natural health kind of industry, um, counselling kind of industry that uh, I've just lived in an amazing bubble of a community that I've been able to, you know an existence out of you know and support my family and uh, survive but that's not a choice that most a lot of people have you know and I'm thinking in particular of uh, our, you know indigenous brothers and sisters who you know don't have um, such easy decisions around this I mean it's just there's uh, so much yeah as you say power and privilege um, associated with even thinking about these questions isn't there absolutely Absolutely. And the way the system is set up to privilege certain truths or ways of thinking or ways of being, it's not really accidental. The whole system is set up to privilege very specific minority of people. And you can just see it and how it all, all plays out, you know, like look at, you know, who are the heads of countries and the richest people and the heads of corporations. Like to me, it's like, it's not complicated. It's like either you think, uh, old white men are actually just better at everything <laughs> and therefore everyone else is worse at everything, which is sort of classic racism or sexism is to say there's something inherently inferior about everyone else. Or you think there's some massive systemic reason at work why yeah. this privileging certain kinds of people. There doesn't, I mean, other, anything else is like a fundamental misunderstanding of statistics yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's like a huge overarching theme in how I sort of try to prioritize my work and how I think about what I'm doing and I feel incredibly privileged to live in Aotearoa New Zealand where we have a vibrant dynamic living indigenous culture that we get to uh, get influenced by and learn from and um, I'm just constantly looking for those opportunities and yeah I'm working on a blog post right now about it that I'm really um, looking forward to putting out there but I think people like you and me who think about these problems in society quite a lot. Like it's obvious that the, the way of being of those old rich white guys 
it's not going to carry us through. Like there's some serious bugs in that program. We are all going to pay for that if we allow it to continue. And so the answers are elsewhere. I think the wisdom is elsewhere and it's up to us to be really um, finding it and looking for it and then figuring out not just how to like, oh, how do we drop our own culture, our own background, our own context and, and move to something totally new? No, it's a whole process of, of integrating and um, balancing and figuring out how do, we, how do we have a society that allows for and celebrates true diversity while also having an, enough cohesion so that we can have you know, big values and make big important decisions. Yeah, I think this is really like the, the big, big project of our time in some ways. Yeah. It's huge. And um, yeah, so much gratitude to you for your contribution to it. I, um, yeah, it's a real honor to talk to you. And uh, thank you so much for this and for all the wonderful work you're doing. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk to you too. That's it for this episode of the Global Active Podcast. Check out globalactive.org for other interviews exploring post-capitalist thinking and praxis. My name's Karun Kalman. Thanks for listening.